Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 212, Hagadot.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And this series in the lead-up to Passover is inspired by conversations that we've had with listeners over the years who have said something along the lines of, okay, you've, you've convinced me we're in this time of Jewish transformation and transition, but what should I actually do? This series is a bit of a case study saying, well, there's a Jewish practice coming up, Passover, that a lot of Jews participate in to some extent. We suspect that they're not quite getting the overwhelming sense of Jewish meaning and personal transformation that, in principle, Passover is hoping to accomplish. And so let's actually roll up our sleeves and look at different ways to approach the holiday of Passover that might make it more meaningful, more powerful, more fun, more interesting. And that's important in its own right. And it's also an interesting case study in, well, if we could do this for Passover, then let's start doing it for every other part of the Jewish experience. Clearly, one of the central dimensions of Passover, as it's experienced by most Jews, is the Passover Seder. And at the center of the Passover Seder, at least right now, is the Passover Haggadah. We think that Haggadot.com is an amazing resource that helps people take all kinds of materials that are on there and mix and match them and create a Haggadah that is most meaningful to you and potentially allows you to bring your Seder where you want it to go. Sure, there are a lot of Haggadahs on the market, and maybe you'll find the perfect one that fits the Seder that you're trying to lead, but maybe not. And Haggadot.com is an incredible resource that facilitates your going and creating your own Haggadah, and we think it actually stands for something bigger. It stands for something that is a resource that's out there on the web for regular Jews to go to, unmediated by someone else, that allows you to explore and create something by yourself in a way that's actually manageable. We're really excited to have as our guest today the founder of Haggadot.com, Eileen Levinson. Eileen Levinson is our favorite kind of Jewish innovator. She is not authorized in any way. She has no degree from any Jewish degree-granting institution. In fact, her degree is a Master of Fine Arts in Graphic Design from CalArts. In addition to creating Hagadot.com, which is going to be a major part of our conversation today, she is the founder and executive creative director of Custom and Craft, a studio and design lab experimenting with new formats for engaging with ancient traditions. You can check out Custom and Craft at www.customandcraft.org. Eileen Levinson currently lives in London, England, although she is in the U.S. very often to help people reimagine and redesign Jewish rituals. We are so excited to have her with us today. Eileen Levinson, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's a great thrill to have you, and we're really looking forward to discussing your work. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you. I think that there's almost nothing better than Haggadot.com as an exemplar of what we're trying to talk about in this episode, in this series. And could we start a little bit by understanding how this all got started? What was the story of the founding of Haggadot.com? Sure. I'm trained as a graphic designer and artist, and I was at CalArts, and I was thinking about how do I merge my interest in design and dance and performance and these ways that we gather 
And we had an assignment called the future of publication. And we had to imagine, this was in 2008, we had to imagine a new type of publication because the big fear was print was dying. This particular program was very print focused, a lot of typography. And if print is dying, what does it mean to be a designer? Uh, but also how exciting, how are we going to engage with content? So my idea for this project was to create an interactive book where many people could create to the story, riff off of the structure, and that immediately brought me back to the Haggadah. I should also say that my background in Judaism to that point, I grew up reform, um, we celebrated Passover. There were years in my childhood where my family was very involved in the synagogue and years where uh, we were less involved. But by the time I got to my early 20s, um, there were experiences where I felt like there were a lot of norms for the community that I maybe didn't fit in. I felt like a little bit of an outsider. I remember get, going to college and saying, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm not really that Jewish, or I'm not that kind of Jew, or, you know, I definitely wasn't going to Hillel. You know, I, I went a couple times for like the high holidays. For Yom Kippur, I would go with my friend to services and then go grab lunch after. Um, so I had a lot of questions about Judaism, and I started making some illustrations and drawings that were also questioning my relationship to Judaism. And then I wanted to think, okay, I had been very critical about ritual and about this community engagement, but how do I actually do something productive to facilitate ritual as the way that I'd like to have it be? So for this future publication project, I decided to uh, prototype. I wasn't a web designer, but to create the idea for what an interactive community-generated Haggadah could be where you could really follow the same structure, but interpret it any way that you wanted. Dan Soratsky had created the open source Haggadah, which was an earlier version of this, um, a similar concept and taking the structure and allowing people to upload, but he wasn't able to create the full vision that he had hoped. Um, so after this graduate school project, I applied to ROI. Uh, which is a community for young Jewish innovators and social entrepreneurs. And it was very helpful to consider that this idea I had could actually become a reality. So can you start by giving us a sense of what was the approach in the early years? Like, what was your notion of how this was going to work and who was going to contribute and what were they doing? And then I'm curious if that's what was borne out or you found that it turned out a different way? The first thing I was grappling with was, can we say what the authentic Haggadah text is? Of course, yes, there is the traditional text in Hebrew, and it was important to me to put that all on the site. But then the next question is, how much of that actually has to be included for it to be still considered a Haggadah? And what I decided was that I was going to make the rules as simple as possible, give users access to what at least reform and conservative movements considered the basic elements of the Haggadah while still keeping the full traditional text on there if a user wanted it. And it wasn't my job to uh, police usage. So if somebody chose to only do a few parts of the Seder and that was meaningful to them, I wasn't going to 
judge whether or not that was a valuable experience because it's possible that they had never done Passover before and them even doing these three parts of the Seder was a great growth experience and and I wanted to meet people where they are. I realize that's also become a main tenet of design thinking, essentially. Um, so I'd say that uh, tension between tradition and innovation was something that I was very aware of in the beginning because I had a little bit of, I felt that I was an outsider Jew all of a sudden being invited to this space where some very uh, committed Jews were. It was new to me. I felt like I had to uh, explain myself or I had to make up for some lack of knowledge. And so in some ways, I think I veered towards more traditional. Um, and I think that happened for a, a few years where the work that I was doing made allowances for uh, more traditional viewpoints without letting my own voice as a maker um, and a thinker through as much. And then over the years, I've tried to insert that a little bit more and, you know, being aware that I want to create this really big tent that is in some ways radical in how big that tent is. The point you make about authenticity, about what, what is the Haggadah? What, what do we count as being a sufficiently genuine Haggadah? How much of the traditional stuff needs to be there? Um, that's a live question. That's a big question. And what I love, actually, is I think that in many ways we've answered that more radically, more creatively for Passover, we broadly defined, we, I don't know, the Jews, we people, um, we've answered it more radically with Passover than we have with some other rituals. Because I think with Passover, I remember, I actually do remember when Haggadot.com sort of arrived on the scene and I would already go to the, the FedEx Kinkos. I've mentioned this in some of the other episodes in the series. I would go to the FedEx Kinkos and the day before Passover, everybody's making their copies of random sources and stuff to put into their Haggadah. It's like the Jewish committee is meeting at the, the Kinkos. So I think that it's cool on the one hand that there is this culture already where it's sort of permitted or allowed to be creative with the Haggadah. That said, I think what you just identified is so important, which is that there's a limit and people feel this constraint. They feel like, oh, I'm not a good enough Jew. I don't know enough. I have to therefore sort of toe the line of tradition and go with what I've received or what my rabbi tells me is sort of the official text of the Haggadah. And so I really would love to hear more from you on that. Like, what was maybe to some extent what was your own personal journey on that because you you created a platform where if somebody wants to they can do entirely their own Haggad. i mean like it's not like it's a template where you start with these are the 11 core parts where you must have them in your Haggadah, and the rest you can like people have a lot of options in terms of how they can approach this so has that always been your approach and i guess how would you encourage others to approach that question in terms of what we count as significant or genuine or authentic or substantial for our Passover practices, for our Haggadot. I was living with Esther Kostanowitz for eight years. Esther is a known Jewish writer and thinker and writes a lot about Judaism and pop culture. And she became one of my closest friends. And living with her also very much informed my Jewish experience. 
we would go to Icar and the music is beautiful. The people are very interesting, but there was a lot that I also felt, there was a lot of times where I felt like my mind would wander and I would use it as a meditative space. And it wasn't until I brought my husband there probably for the first time, maybe four years ago. And he's also Jewish. He grew up reform. And he was like, you know, there's just a lot of Hebrew. There's like a lot of stuff that I don't get. And I was like, well, you know, you just kind of, it's okay. You get most of it, you sit through. And he's like, but why? You know, why, why should I? <laughs> like, why can't the whole service just be something that I get? Or 90% of the service be something that I get? And I realized how many times I put myself in situations where I accepted that there was something that I didn't get and it would eventually come to me. And eventually, I think I realized I deserve to, to get everything. I, uh, there is a learning curve in Judaism, but I don't have to say that the problem is me or my lack of knowledge or education because I'm not connecting with something. I'm going to be 40 this summer. And I think that that is the main theme in my life right now is if something doesn't feel authentic to me, it's not because of me. It's because it's just not the fit anymore. I guess I'm curious about two aspects of it. Number one, if you could describe a little bit, I don't know, like how you had what we call in a very positive way, the chutzpah to do something like this. You know, when, when you yourself feel that I don't really know that much, how do you do it? I mean, do you, do you set out and do you say, I'm doing this, but I'm going to learn concurrently with setting this up so that by the time this is launched, I really do know and I am an expert? Or do you say, no, the whole philosophy of design is that we just do a prototype and it doesn't have to be that great. And if somebody criticizes me that it's not knowledgeable enough, I'll just fix it next year, you know, or whatever. You know, how do you kind of go into that whole process? I don't let perfection get in the way of good enough. I'm okay with building things piece by piece and playing and trying things out. Um, I have, especially when I was younger, a lot of confidence. <laughs> and, um, and if somebody says I can't do something or if I'm not smart enough to do something or I don't have enough knowledge, I have to do it because <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't like being told that I can't or, uh, I'm not able to. Can I ask you, do you think that that's just a characteristic about you or, or like, let's say that, you know, our, our listeners, because it's something that we really have been advocating for, especially more and more lately, is that regular people should just play around and experiment with this stuff. And, I, and I'm wondering whether realistically, the people who are going to take up that challenge are a certain kind of person, like you're describing these tenacious, I, nobody can tell me I can't do it. Or is there some way that we could say something to people to say, like, hey, don't worry about it. You know, everybody can do it. You know, it reminds me of the uh, the rat in Ratatouille, or I think he was the opposite of that. But, you know, anyone can cook. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that anyone can do it, but I'm saying that anybody, every viewpoint is relevant in some way. And especially when it comes to Judaism, and I was used to being told that I didn't know enough or I was not really you know, there, there was, there's so much of Jew judging that goes on. And I, that was one of the things that turned me off. Uh, even growing up, I remember friends who went to conservative synagogue or kept kosher. There was a little bit of like, oh, you're eating that? Like the, you know, pepperoni pizza. <laughs> and so 
I wanted to claim that my uh, experience still being a thoughtful, educated person that cares about tradition and history and connection, that, that these experiences are valid and are, and are just as meaningful. Um, you know, somebody who went to yeshiva growing up, well, they know the entire Talmud uh, forwards and backwards, but I know art history, and <laughs> I'm going to bring that to this. I'd love to jump into just a little bit of what is Haggadot.com. Um, and so I asked this with many layers of excitement. First off, I'm geeking out because I am a longtime Haggadot.com user, um, close to, a, not quite, um, but close to a decade at this point. Um, my mom, I owe her all the credit for this, um, found Haggadot.com and created a Haggadah that we've been using right at the beginning of the decade of the 2010s. So this is cool. I'm meeting, I'm meeting somebody famous in my life who's, you know, made a difference in one of the most important moments of my year for a bunch of years. So that's cool. Um, but it, it, that opens up the question, you know, talking about my mom, but there's lots of other people out there using your site. Like, what is it to go to Haggadot.com and make a thing that you then use in a Seder? What, like, what kinds of people are doing this? And like, when they do, what does it look like? There are a few users. There's obviously the people who are Haggadah fanatics. They've been making Haggadahs for years. We're taking that behavior. We're putting it online, uh, giving them the tools that they always hoped that they would have. But there are plenty of users who love to browse. They come to the site uh, every year to, make, to get a new reading or artwork or something relevant to add to a Seder that they already have or, or Haggadah that they like to do every year, but just add a couple new things. There are those who are just curious. Uh, it's the night before Passover. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe I should download a Haggadah. Our traffic totally spikes uh, <laughs> on those two days. And I'm totally cool with the last minute users because uh, if I weren't making the site, I'd probably be one of them. And with those groups in mind, we've started to tailor our offerings to them. So the people who have a set Haggadah they tend to use and are looking for a reading or two, we've made more uh, compilations and supplements for them. So it's easier for them to get um, a packet that they can print alongside their regular Haggadah, basically feeding them a little bit more than they normally would take. We get a lot of college Hillels that are making a Haggadah, which I love. I love to see what they're thinking about. Um, there's also this age of parents with young children where the kids are getting PJ library books or they're going to a Jewish preschool. And maybe the parents weren't that intentional about their Jewish practice before, but now Judaism is back in their lives in a surprising way. And they're figuring out how they want to do it because their kids are kind of excited about it. And lately, there's been a ton of retire. I'd say recent retirees reaching out because uh, they have more time. They want to continue Jewish traditions with their family, see what's going on. And they're also a little more uh, tech savvy of the retired age group. And this to them is a whole new world. So... When somebody comes to the site, they can view ready-made Haggadahs, and they can download that. If they want to make their own Haggadah, they can start by getting to our homepage where we explain that this is what the site offers, 
And they can start a Haggadah by selecting a template. So we have that traditional Haggadah text on there. Um, and then we also have a liberal version, which is by Jewish Boston. They're, the Wandering is Over Haggadah. And then we have a blank template, which is essentially no template for somebody who wants to start from scratch. When they get that template, they then can go through and add additional content, which we call clips, for each uh, section of the Seder. And those clips can be a reading, a prayer, uh, a piece of artwork, a video. We needed to create this concept of clips as independent modules for mixing and matching. And it's not perfect. Sometimes people want to take the entire Magid section and copy it. But what happens is you get a lot of overlap or uh, the usability of it doesn't really work for sharing. So we encourage as much as possible to, to break the content down. So a user can completely gather content from other people on the site. They can search by the section, they can search by category, whether that's social justice or environmental issues or entertainment and humor, and then choose to print it out either as a landscape form or a booklet, or if they want to change the font or some of the layout, they can download it as a Word document and do those additional edits uh, on Microsoft Word. I would love for us to allow users to design the whole thing and offer fonts and different layouts on the site. That's just something we need to fundraise for eventually. But the Word document is a really nice workaround for now where users can still fundamentally uh, get everything that they need from the site and then use what they're more familiar with for designing and layout. So this might seem like an absurdly nitty gritty question, um, like down in the, in the weeds of what you just said, but I want to talk about clips. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the specifics that you outlined in terms of how there are clips that people use to, to stitch together their Haggadot. My goal is that it is going to turn from nitty gritty to very big picture. Mm -hmm. We'll see if that actually happens. So when you talk about clips, you go on the site and you mentioned the Magid section. So the Magid section is a big section of the Passover Seder, which, I mean, it means like the telling. Magid is the same. The Gid part is actually the same root as the Gada, the Gad in, in Haggadah. It's about telling the story. Now, the story is complicated. And what is traditionally said in that part is a whole set of things. But there's like the four children there and the four questions. There's like a whole bunch of stuff. But I think that there's something very deep there. And here's what I mean by that. I, I am imagining proposing to somebody, Kol Nidre, so the, the, the Yom Kippur evening service. Let's approach it with clips. Here's Kol Nidre, the biggest prayer of the year. I mean, one of the biggest prayers of the year. People have a very sentimental connection to it in all sorts of ways. Here's seven options. Uh, a social justice related one, a gender related one, a traditional one, a this one, a that one. That's what it's like on your site. Um, Let's choose one of those. And a different service is going to choose a different one. I feel like the reaction to that, even in many non-traditional kinds of spaces, would be a little more, wait, we're going to like choose to not do the traditional kol nidre? Like what? Like we might be the most outside the box congregation on the planet, but like you chant those Aramaic words and you chant them three times. And like maybe you have a cello. 
I'm imagining a huge resistance there. And so I want to ask about that because I'd like to create a world where there's less of that resistance because I think if we applied what you've done with Haggadot.com with these, with these clips to, to everything, to, to like every Jewish ritual, we would do them better and they would mean more. And I mean, it's a simple design idea, but it's just, it's, it's accepting the premise that every single piece, every little moment is a choice. Mm-hmm. And you can make a beautiful, meaningful choice with every little second of what you do. And it's actually a deeply sacred, it's not a, it's not a screw you, I don't care about tradition choice. It's actually, wow, I care about all of this. And I'm going to choose for these 15 sections of the Seder, the optimum thing for this year, for this group of people, what it's going to be. So I, I like, I'd love to hear from you. What are those clips what what possibilities do they open up? And to the extent that you've thought about this, do you think we should be applying this outside of Passover to all sorts of other things? Yes, Lex. I love all of that. That is essentially my ethos as a designer and why I do what I do. Uh, these basic building blocks of Jewish ritual, uh, not just these content choices, but... Um, how you, how you then say it or read it? How are you physically in the space? How are all of your senses engaged? That is what fascinates me. And what you're saying about Kol Nidre is very interesting. And it's an example of the possibilities of this type of design and also the challenges. So I'm going to talk a little bit about custom and craft because I think that will uh, help us understand this. So we had a lot of interest in users to take this technology and this idea of mixing and matching, making your own uh, essentially Jewish rituals in book form and taking it to other types of content. That's how we launched Custom and Craft. And Custom and Craft, I'd say it's been about four or five years of incubation and research and development. And there were times when I thought it was a failure and then I'd get through that period and I would realize that that was just a great learning opportunity to inform what I needed to do next. So it's not exactly an easy transfer to take this full Haggadah or or this idea of, you know, sections and transfer it to making Rosh Hashanah or Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre is a perfect example because Yes, partially, I think there is this little bit of like, you know, even the most skeptical of us are probably superstitious or in some way, like, this is the part that I really don't want to mess with. If if there's ever a point where I'm going to get God angry at me, even the God that I'm not sure if I believe in, this is that moment where I'm a little afraid. But aside from that, even the knowledge of Kol Nidre, you have to be in a leadership position of a community to even want to consider doing this because the average Jew uh, just doesn't have the bandwidth or the time to really think about making uh, their own Kol Nidre. Um, that being said, we did launch Custom and Craft, and there is an opportunity to create your own services. We, we went for the real user-friendly, new-to-Judaism uh, take on this. So we created a Rosh Hashanah dinner, where you're thinking about all the things that you might do at the dinner, you're going to light candles, you're going to bless the wine, you'll eat apples and honey. By the way, it's a different prayer. Here's what it is. You're gonna, here's how to think back on the year behind you. Here's how to um, think ahead. Here are the elements of a Seder where you might do the new fruits 
or the punny foods. And if you want, you can make it your own. We found that on Custom and Craft, the more curated content that we could provide that sort of lays out those steps where you can download, you don't have to do the work at that time on the website. You can print it out and then you're doing the work at home, either personally as a reflective practice or you do it as a group. And um, that just works much better. I think there's an opportunity for us to take the entire High Holiday liturgy and prayer book and turn that into clips, especially the, Jew the Jewish groups that are popping up around the high holidays and making their own experiences and their own services. I'm very interested in the possibilities of it. I think that the uh, core user group is much smaller. I guess I'm thinking now about both Hagadot.com and Custom and Craft and wondering is there a way that you describe today the the need that you're there to address? Like, what is it that your typical user, or maybe you have a few different user categories, like you said earlier, you know, what is the need that these things are, are meeting? I think that there's still a feeling of confusion and yet curiosity about religion. I think there are so many of us who feel like we haven't been included in the mainstream forms of religion and practice as we know it. And yet there's this natural hunger inside us to want to connect to something bigger. I almost feel that our interest in spirituality is as important as any of our other human needs. Even those of us who say that they're totally atheist or secular, or they don't believe in God, but they believe in the universe, we're all looking for a way to connect and to mark our transitions and to feel like a human being. I don't know if your data is this uh, granular, but do you have any sense from usage? Like, is there a, a sense like th these are the things that are really, really popular? Like, these are the things that people seem to be really gravitating towards? I know that the liberal Haggadah that we have from Jewish Boston is by far one of the most popular pieces of content on the site. I really should be partnering with them more now that we're talking about it. Um, so hi, Jewish Boston. Um, but that, <laughs> Some of them listen. We know yes, that they do. Yeah. Yes. Give me a call. So that is, very, that is very popular because it just makes it easy. They do such a great job of making it meaningful, but not dumbing it down and, um, and giving people all the pieces that they need. It's interesting when we talk about popularity and especially from uh, you know, what is popular because we create these feedback loops. What does well on the site gets promoted more and what gets promoted more does better. And this year in particular, I'm trying to be very conscious about going through the content that hasn't been featured and bringing that up to the top because there is so much great quality in there. Uh, there has been a lot of great feminist content that's emerged on the site that I feel excited by, and I've promoted that, and it's done very well. And it's also angered some people who feel that it's not appropriate. I'm okay with that. There was a Haggadah a couple years ago that a group of teenagers who were part of a leadership development program in Chicago uh, created called The Revenge of uh, Dina. It's a Haggadah on rape culture. 
And to some people that is completely too intense and has no bearing on the Seder. And to some women, it's so relevant and a breath of fresh air that we're finally able to talk about it. That was one piece that did very well. Humor does really well. People love skits. People love uh, looking for Passover plays on the site. And I, I think one of the reasons that Passover is so popular is because it gives us permission to play. And we could think, oh, I'm, I'm an adult or I'm, I'm not creative. And this is not something that I do. But in this particular instance, it's actually my duty to join in and take on this part and not just for kids, but for adults too. So I've been thinking about ways that we could expand some of the skits and these interactive readings together. It actually reminds me of something that I've been working on in terms of trying to break down Jewish rituals into uh, in the kind of categories of Simon Sinek in his famous TED Talk, the why, the how, and the what, and that a very distinct how, right, a process of technology that Judaism tends to use, particularly at Passover, is the technology of reenactment of a particular time in our history that has meaning, and that if we actually embody that that experience, then we would be changed by it. And it's fascinating to think like, well, well, this is that's another layer because we could actually get data. And if it turns out that reenactment actually is an extremely popular how, then we could say, oh, let's let's bring the how of reenactment to many other holidays that have not traditionally included reenactment. So what might reenactment look like at Hanukkah? What might reenactment look like for Yom Kippur? Actually, we sort of do at the end of the service. There's that reenactment of the temple service, but most people aren't aren't still there at that point. So a lot of people don't know about that. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, I would say that many of us have memories of being a kid and maybe at Thanksgiving putting on that play that you made or being a part of the Purim spiel or, you know, uh, yeah, there's so many opportunities where these are just delightful experiences that we need again. I also have to say that I, I love Simon Sinek and when I, uh, when Custom and Craft works with clients and partners, that's where we start. Too often people think when they're working with a designer that everything's figured out and you just got to make it pretty. And what's so important is that we're actually starting from this very core intention and designing a solution to get to this intention. And it might look very different or be a very different, take a different form than what you thought it was. Uh, the right mode for approaching a problem can look very differently depending on who the audience is and what they need. I love to the bottom of my core what you said about popularity and how um, going back to just the website, but it's not just about the website, but go, like this is true of how the entire internet is created. Like when something is popular, it rises on Google's results feed and it stays popular. And if something's not popular, it's, it goes down on Google's results feed. And Facebook wise, you know, if, if I've got a history of like clicking on a person's posts or liking that, like that is going to come on my newsfeed more. And if I don't for somebody else, that's going to go down. Like this is a huge thing in the internet. I want to make the argument that what you said is not just true digitally, but it is true generally. What you said about how if a clip is popular, it will show up on a screen more likely and people will use it in their Haggadot. I want to think about what that means in terms of like the melodies we choose for a service. Like 
so often, I'll be honest, I, here I am trying to be Mr. Creative and Unbound and whatever in Jewish rituals. And like when I am leading something, often part of the process, and this needs to be part of the process, is, okay, what do people in the room already know? So if I'm choosing melodies for a service, even if it's a really creative, awesome, outside-the-box service, I'm starting with the question, okay, I, I can't push too hard and try to bring in things that aren't well-known, which I'm going to use the word are unpopular. It's not the same thing. But like, so you use the the biggest melodies and certain key musicians become sort of the ones in Jewish life. And we do this over and over. It's, and I would expand it even more. We do it with the calendar. Like Passover is popular. So we, and um, and we should because of that. We should absolutely accept that and do things with Passover that would not be potentially possible with a Shavuot or a Tuvishvat or other, other holidays that we've talked about on this show that are smaller and less observed. But at the same time, I kind of want to do what you just talked about with plugging feminist sources that are not necessarily the most popular automatically that do require some amount of featuring for people to then opt into them. I want to think about like what what are those moments that that are not popular that deserve to be? And so that's like the flex that I want to lean into. So I'm I'm a curious about that question with the the Jewish calendar. If so you've done you've done work on Shabbat services in general, are there moments you think are like ripe for experimentation? in the rest of the year. And if that's a little bit of a stretch, I get that that's kind of out of left field. Are there moments in the Passover Seder? Are there moments that are kind of brush along moments? I'm thinking of like washing our hands twice or so. Like, are there moments in the Passover Seder that we might not think of as quote unquote popular or big ticket moments that actually could be really meaningful if we specifically decide to, to use your words, like promote them or, or make them more clickable, make them more popular? I think this year I'm very interested in the hand washing in Orchatz and Ratza because uh, Orchatz being in the towards the beginning of the Seder, Ratza being right before we uh, eat the meal. And I think that as the Seder was created, it was a brilliant point because they knew that washing your hands is this physical transformation where you go from you, you change yourself from one part to the next. We all could think more about those times when we're having a transformation. I also think that water is very important. We've been taking it for granted, uh, whether it's thinking about Flint, Michigan, or the Dakota pipeline, or climate change. So I, I am making a push for those two moments in the Seder. Washing the hands, I think, is a very simple but powerful uh, moment. Other moments in the Jewish calendar, which I think are not yet popular, but deserve to be, uh, Tashli. And these are also segues to talk about a couple other projects. So for example, Eastside Jews put together a great event called um, Down to the River, where part of that was a community Tashlik ritual. So Tashlik is the experience where traditionally you would take uh, pieces of bread and throw them into a large moving body of water as a way of casting off your sins uh, before Yom Kippur. Tashlik uh, was a central piece of this gathering by Eastside Jews, and they invited me to produce a, a piece at this event. What I found very interesting about Tashlik is that it's so independent. You're never stating what you're apologizing for or why 
Um, you're in your own head. It is quite beautiful because you are doing it as a group. And so I think that the original uh, practice of Tashlik on its own is very meaningful, and I hope that it continues to grow. But I also created another way of considering Tashlik where visitors can come to an apologies booth and take rice paper that will dissolve in water and write their own uh, apologies on in this booth. It's anonymous, posted on a wall. And the next person who comes in can then read these anonymous apologies off the wall, take one down, and replace it with their own. Then when they leave, they take that uh, note card and drop it in water, and the cards start to dissolve and the words dissolve. So that's Tashlik. And in general, I think that the high holidays are so powerful. So I think that um, obviously the high holidays are very popular, but I believe they should be popular in a different way, in a way that's more authentic and connected to um, the materiality of our lives. I think Sukkot is also really cool. Sukkot is the holiday where we build these huts in our backyard. And if you are observant, uh, would even sleep or dine in the hut. And there is a set of instructions for how you build this hut. Essentially, it's a design brief um, that it has, you have to be able to see the stars. Um, it has to have natural materials. And there's something very magical. Uh, I remember this also as a kid, going to the temple sukkah and sitting out and having dinner under the stars with these handmade decorations uh, in this funny uh, building. And I just see a lot more people embracing it. I wanted to get back to something that you said early on in the conversation about that it's difficult to, to create a Jewish experience where everybody feels included, even though there's kind of a myth that that's achievable. And what that usually ends up being, at least in my experience, is that we do what's called the, quote, from a common denominator pluralism, meaning the, the most religious, nothing violates their needs, which on the one hand seems very reasonable and fair, but it ends up, I think, causing a lot of, let's say, non-religious people to just sort of not come because that's uncomfortable for them. It might not violate a law in their life. And sometimes it does, such as feminist issues, but sometimes it's just like, I don't really like to, I, I like to use my phone in Shabbat. You know, I really don't like a whole day where I can't use my phone. So this place isn't really for me. And I was recently at a, a Shabbat gathering that was meant to be pluralistic and open to everybody. But by the end of it, I kind of felt like, you know what, I shouldn't have come for this. This wasn't really for people like me as much as they wanted it to be welcoming. So I I guess my question is when it's when the shoe's on the other foot in a way when when people who are not orthodox or not even uh, traditionally observant create a, an experience how do you think about the fact that for them to fully put themselves into it and create something that truly works on a deep level for them might mean that religious folks or observant folks are, are not going to feel comfortable there and you know how do we kind of maybe think about that in a in a new way I'll back into this and say that for so many years, I focused on making other people comfortable. And if I am going to host in any way, I want to make sure that everyone is comfortable, almost to a point of making myself, I mean, not almost to a point, to a point of making myself feel stressed and not being able to fully be present in the moment. We all have people that we feel 
need to join us in some way, or we all would like to think of ourselves as welcoming and inclusive. So in addition with being radically welcoming, I want to say, I want to be transparent about my perspective and needs as the creator of the site. And I encourage you to be transparent about your needs as the host. And I think being clear about for the beginning gives uh, people an opportunity to respectfully bow out. If you invite somebody to a, a, a Seder or any circumstance where you know that something might happen that makes them uncomfortable, give them a heads up beforehand. But it's also not your primary responsibility to elevate their needs over everybody else. That's a very general way of um, looking at this. It's interesting because on one hand, I want people to feel empowered to go with their own voice. The trick is to, to find that line between understanding your needs and being true to yourself while also making space for that which makes you uncomfortable too in the service of learning. Yeah, I love this balance that you're calling for us to strike. It's tough to do that. It's tough to think about your own needs in an event and also everybody coming, but um, it's a worthwhile thing to consider as you're planning events, as any of us are planning events. Um, we're closing out. And before we do, we want to give you a chance to to talk a little bit about Custom and Craft, um, this corollary project that is related to Hagadot.com, but also very much its own thing. So what is Custom and Craft? You've hinted at it a little bit so far, but maybe a little bit more detail. How did you launch it? Um, maybe to the extent you can talk about this, what were some of the challenges you faced in building Custom and Craft along the way? And um, where is it now? What's the direction looking like moving forward? We love to close our episodes with a little bit of a forward look. Um, so tell us about that. What's Custom and Craft and where is it headed? We launched Custom and Craft as a partner to Hagado.com so that Jews could make their own high holiday services or Shabbat meals or Tubishvat, what have you. When we launched Custom and Craft, it wasn't like Passover. Every single Jewish organization didn't have their high holiday resources to share in the way that they had their Passover supplements that we were, they were putting out. We started to partner with organizations to make their content more digestible, almost taking their content that they had on their website or in their programs and turning it into clips, these digestible modules. Um, we started to build a real uh, brand as uh, being designers for the Jewish community. And we received a cutting edge grant from the Jewish Community Foundation of Los Angeles. And I think everybody who's a work runs a nonprofit can relate to this. You have an idea for something you want to do. You pitch it to a funder. Uh, the funder gives you 75% of the money for that. And you also are going to fundraise uh, a certain amount of money from other funders and you don't get that. Meanwhile, you said you're breaking all... out into a cold sweat here. Yeah. Yes. Meanwhile, you've said you're going to do all this great stuff. You get less money. And if you're like me, I, with my extreme sense of confidence, one of my failures as a leader has been this tendency to overimagine and overcommit. And then with the realities of actually getting not enough money to do what you do. So those years were both a huge growth and a huge uh, burden because we were doing a lot of running around with small client projects, 
very labor-intensive work that wasn't helping to build the long-term uh, strategic growth of the brand. Where I got lucky is that in the middle of 2018, uh, my husband and I learned that we were going to be moving to Germany. And it was perfect timing when some of our grant commitments ran out to take that time abroad to just think about how I really wanted to operate as a leader and as an artist. And um, what's interesting is that this fall, I noticed Custom and Craft's audience was growing. The plan for the future is I want as much as possible to take leadership, um, at least the executive director leadership, off my plate so that I can do as much creative work as possible. What's good about my creative work is that that is an organization, you know, designing is also being an organizer and a leader too. So it's not like I would totally be stepped out. Um, I just want to focus on continuing to make projects that excite me. Essentially, Custom and Craft has become a studio to enable Jewish creative seekers to have the tools that they need to make Judaism their own. Using technology and media and print products, anything that we need to get Jews and maybe in the future even more non-Jews involved in making this all their own. Thank you so much, Eileen Levinson, for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. This has been really fun. This has been fun. We hope that it's been a fun time for all of you listening as well. And uh, also, we hope that you'll stick around with us through the remainder of our episodes in this Passover series, which will, of course, culminate in the actual holiday of Passover. Coming up, not too far away, start planning your seders, start planning your post-seders, all of it. It's coming your way. We're trying our best to help you as you do that preparation. So stay tuned for those future episodes. We're going to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. So first, there's our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, there's our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, we've got our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, there's email. Email us, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're willing to send our way. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate with either a monthly recurring gift or a one-time donation. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.